A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by John Cross of the Daily Mirror and by Richard Amofa of The Athletic. This week's guest is Aston Villa defender Tyrone Mings, who offers a unique insight into the impact of Unai Emery. Under him, Villa are the Premier League's informed team. Only Manchester City can match their recent consistency. City have a Champions League semi-final against Real Madrid and are prohibitive favourites to beat Sheffield United in Saturday's FA Cup semi-final. After that, of course, they face a probable title decider against Arsenal. So, John, is a treble a realistic aim? Yes, I think so. I really feel as if, not just realistic, but quite likely, <laughs> I have to say. I mean, you look at you look at the FA Cup, which is up next. Yes, I feel as if they're going to reach the, the, the final. Surely they'll be red-hot favourites. And that, I suppose the only danger really is, is whether Guardiola rests and rotates a little. But there's a gap, isn't there, between Saturday and Wednesday. And then I, I just feel that the best team in Europe right now, I think he's got so much focus, I think, this season on the Champions League that Guardiola can do it. Just look at the way that they played brilliantly, weren't they? Particularly in that first leg against Bayern. I mean, the job done really, wasn't it? So last night was almost irrespective there to weather the storm. And I just feel as if they've got the momentum and impetus um, in the Premier League title race. Yes, Arsenal have been there so so much of the season, 90% of the season, really. I just feel as if City have this incredible ability in the last third of the season to go on these remarkable winning runs. It's almost as if Guardiola saves up the team's energy and drive for that running. He gets it to absolute perfection. He can't do it for the full season. We spend so many seasons, don't we, in, in November, December, January, saying what's wrong with City this year. Well, it's it, the only fault in City is that they're waiting to get going in February, March, April, May. I mean, they're just irresistible. I just think they're playing beautiful football, great to watch. Frankly, from this point on, I'd be surprised if they don't win the treble. Mm. Well, Guardiola's already talking about win, win and win, and it's set to be his signature season, isn't it, Rich? Do you think it's an object lesson in squad management and almost team development as well, in, in what are obviously unique circumstances? I, I think so. I mean, he, he made a decision in January to uh, to move... Jao Cancelo on and I feel like that's proven pivotal in terms of their setup and how they play and we saw that on Wednesday evening and in the first leg against Bayern as well with their four centre-backs playing across the back four and it looks so much more solid and that really helps provide the kind of building blocks for their attacking play and we're seeing them being very fruitful in, in that respect as well you know we're seeing the likes of Aki excelling at left back and Akanji at right back being repurposed in, in different positions and, and being effective there. We've seen the evolution of John Stones as well coming into midfield and, and excelling there as well. And he's having a fantastic season overall. So when you're looking at the kind of squad management, making those decisions to kind of weed out the players who maybe aren't putting in the right direction, while also seeing players getting better and being repurposed for, you know, for the greater good of the side, you can only look and say, you know, he's doing amazing. I mean, and that's only touched on the defence, let alone them getting, I say, the best out of Haaland. But as you mentioned earlier in the season, although he was scoring all these goals, there were question marks, weren't there, as to, you know, 
our, our city playing to Haaland's strengths and vice versa. Now we're seeing City are almost adapting to Haaland and finding his runs better and his combinations with, with Kevin De Bruyne is, is you know is, is really exciting to watch. Seems like Grealish come on leaps and bounds since the World Cup as well, and his form's really skyrocketed. So, as 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 John said, you know, it's almost everything's coming into place at the right time and they have this track record of, of putting runs together almost as you say saving themselves and gearing up for this title running which they've been that many times before and you know you can't put a price on experience they've been here you know year in year out over the past what, four or five seasons and it's that experience will prove key to being a running mm. what about Real Madrid John you were at both legs of the tie against Chelsea you know it's hard not to build this semi-final as essentially a two-legged final, isn't it? You know, okay, they're going to face the winner of a Milan derby in Istanbul on June the 10th. Uh, But frankly, you know, we talked about prohibitive favourites in terms of the FA Cup. Well, they'll be the same if City get through for the final, won't they? Yeah, I was trying to think last night, actually, about how long has it been since we've had such a red-hot favourite for the final against whoever gets through, against whichever of the Milan clubs it will be simply because I just feel as if for anyone that's watched Italian football this season, it's it's in a strange place. Napoli have been the exception to the rule. They played some super stuff and then Milan go and upset them. But I just feel as if over the course of the two legs, I just can't believe that Spurs went out to AC Milan. Mm. Um, Inter are stuck in a season of, by their standards, mediocrity. And if you look at, for example, Milan's kind of structure and, and identity right now, it's taking younger players and sort of developing them and they will complain until the cows come home about the kind of how far Italian football because of the finance is slipping far behind so I do feel as, as if it's a really you know it's that pass almost to win the win the trophy I felt as if Madrid were in the Bernabeu ready to put their foot on the gas when needed they did exactly the same at Stamford Bridge but they lure you into this into this sense that they're not that great, they're not that special. But they did that to me last season, frankly, and they went and won a record-extended 14th trophy. You know, it's they are a special, special team made up of special players. They are perhaps not, not quite as dominant or star-studded as, as they have been in the past, perhaps in years gone by, but they've still got so many players who know what it takes to win. And, and do that and, and be so consistent in this competition. They are such a danger. They are the biggest threat, I think, to Manchester City's chance of the treble. I, th- I feel as if City will do it, but I think it will be a lot tighter than than people think, really. Mm. Well, it's interesting, to John's point, Rich, uh, I saw a, a quote from Fede Valverde, which was put out by Sid Lowe, and the quote was, when you think you're closest to beating Real Madrid is when you're closest to losing to them. And that tends to sum it up, doesn't it? Where can City win this game? Can they maybe impose themselves on a stellar, but you know, let's be honest, an ageing midfield? Yes, they, they, they can do. I mean, as John said, you know, maybe Real Madrid aren't as efficient as they were last season but I mean Cruz and Modric are still a class act of course they're a year older but they can still control games but then you've got Valverde for example who's a year older but he's getting closer to his peak and as you mentioned you know what what, what a play he is so you know of course look, City if they if they can get hold of the ball like they do and control the game which they like to do then they'll have every chance because as, as we know Real Madrid can score at any moment as, as Valverde said in, in his quote, you know, when you think you're closer to them, they hit you a sucker puncher. They know how to score in key moments of games. You know, you look at the Chelsea game, they sealed the tie just after the red card. You know, at Anfield when it was 2-2, they scored just after half time, just to add that sucker punch. They know when to put teams away and they can score goals in quick succession. But at least say City have the quality. You know, Rodri's had a fantastic season in midfield and Kevin De Bruyne and I suspect Bernardo Silva will probably be the third midfielder there be really really intriguing tussle but I just feel City have that quality in you know in, in Haaland they have they have the cheat code up front really where any opportunity he, he's likely to score so it's a super interesting time I, I don't see it going the way of last year where it was 6-5 and I go I think that was just a crazy game I think City are more controlled this year as I said with the you know bit sharp at the back with the four centre-backs playing across the back four as I mentioned and we saw against Bayern as well you know 
quite low possession. I think they had in the first leg was about 45% possession, which is unlike City. But knowing how to score at key times in the games, I think they're really building that efficiency. And as you say, Champions League is... If they don't win it now, then then it's a case of when. Because, I mean, they've, been, they've come so close in previous years. And of course, they're going for the league. But I think Guardiola now... Now he's improved the kind of control of the side in terms of dominating play. And it's not as kind of kamikaze and chaotic as earlier in the season. And last season, I think they've got every chance. Mm. What about the power of tradition, John? You know, this is Madrid's 11th Champions League semi-final in 13 years. And it's a club devoted to and defined by European competition, isn't it? So if you add that power of the tradition to... The youth, if you like, of that front three, obviously, you know, Benzema is, is is a senior, senior pro, but you've got either side of him, 22-year-olds in Vinicius Jr. and Rodrigo. Yeah, I, I feel as if it's the it's the way that the tradition makes them feel, isn't it? It makes the team feel as if they are invincible, as if they are completely untouchable in Europe. And when they go behind, they're not beaten. They're never beaten. That That's the confidence that, that, that their record gives those sort of players. I mean, I have to say, I love Vinicius Junior. I, 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 don't, I don't think I realised quite how good he was until last season's run. And he was sensational. For me, he was the best, I don't know, he was the best player in club football, I thought, across the European competitions, really. You then go into kind of the, with the wider debate, of course you do, about player of the year in world terms and, and Messi, you know. But I just feel as if Vinicius... It just dominated that competition and turned it on when it needed to. Who's been the dominant player over the two legs against Chelsea and served up the warning? Rodrigo. And I just thought that his pace and his direct running the other night just completely undid Chelsea's defence. Obviously, Chalaba got sucked in. And basically, that's what his electric pace can do to you because Chalaba's no slouch. It was a mistake, clearly, but he was lured into it thinking, I've got the pace to do this. Well, he hadn't. He was just caught out and they are special players and they give such width and incredible options that they are the biggest threat. And so you can almost, I wouldn't say carry, but basically the legs of Modric and Cruz, you can indulge those because they're such talented players. And Modric surprised me actually, he was sharp the other night, he was quick. I just think there's something special, I think, about this about this Madrid team. It's epitomised, whatever they do in the future, whether they sign Mbappe in the longer term or whatever. Can you imagine that front three? I mean, that would be just <laughs> just crazy and just untouchable, wouldn't it? And so mm. basically, I almost feel have myself thinking, I wish they would, because how exciting would that be? But they have got the most, two of the most exciting wide players around in, in the world right now, I think. Mm. Okay, Rich, this is a bit of a, a stretch, but imagine you're Guardiola. You've got Erling Haaland, who wants to play every minute of every game and score a gazillion goals if he gets the chance. He's got 48 and counting. How would you play him over the next few games in terms of like rotation? They, he took him off last weekend at half-time against Leicester. You've got Sheffield United with the great respect. Would you imagine that that team would look a little bit different from the team that will turn up against Arsenal on the following Wednesday? I suspect so. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot and we've had a, a few debates in the office about just because we all know, you know Guardiola can throw up his curveballs from, from time to time. But, I mean, he, he's also not shy of bringing Haaland off when he feels he needs to. You know, as you mentioned, he brought him off at half-time over the weekend. And, you know, even, for example, the uh, the Leipzig game when he was on his double hat-trick and you're thinking, go on, yeah, go on, you know, let him make history. And he, he took him off when he was on his, when he was on his sixth goal. So... He's not he's not afraid of taking him out and giving him that rest when he needs to. And and look, you know, if he was to come out I and mean, he's got a more than able deputy in, in Julian Alvarez, World Cup winner to, to come in, such a strength and depth and and not really disrupt City's play. As as you say, I you know, City are of course overwhelming favourites for that game against Sheffield United. And yeah, I think if you're probably looking at it sensibly, you probably would, would rest him for that Arsenal game, make sure he's he's ready and firing to go for that one because that, that, that's the key that's the shootout isn't it so yeah I, I, if, it, if I was him I, I would rest him but I'm not Pep Guardiola I haven't got the accolades that he's got he, he, he knows the master plan but um, yeah I, if, if it was if it was me I, I would rest him for that big game mm. you know there, basically there is a by common sense 
is going to be a title decider on Wednesday, John. You know, these sudden doubts about Arsenal's ability to manage Leeds, you know, there's been a lot of loose and frankly ludicrous talk about them being bottlers. But, you know, what do Arsenal need to do that they haven't been doing recently to give themselves a chance? Yeah, I, I think Bottas is really harsh. I think that I think you could certainly look at West Ham and say arrogant. <laughs> I, th- I do think they were a bit, you know, they let arrogance creep into their play and the 2 0 up and they let it slip. They've got to get back to that kind of hungry desire, determination that has seen them win so many games on the bounce this season. And I just feel as if a couple of people don't agree with, with me this uh, at all. But I also think that I wonder whether the city factor has come in and spooked them a little bit just because I think City have looked so good on their winning streak. And I just wonder whether Arsenal think, oh, blimey. And I wonder whether that's getting into their head subconsciously. Because for the first time, we felt as if, you know, Arsenal was, you know, clearly fended off City in the recent past when they lost at the Emirates. They, you know, surrendered top spot, didn't they? But they came back again. And now it just looks as if they're just slipping away. This, this, this The game at the Etihad is so pivotal for, for both teams. Arsenal, it's easy to forget, play Southampton Friday night. If they win that game, they will go to the Etihad seven points clear. Yes, they'll have played two games more. But can you imagine if they avoid defeat or indeed win that game? Well, it's title, Mm. you know, chase back on. You know, so I just feel as if Arsenal got to kind of get back in their heads. Maybe is it time for a change? I think the absence of Saliba is massive. Saliba kind of builds from the back. He keeps possession well. Holding is not that player. He comes in and does a good job. Saliba really comes in and manages games. And I think it's about managing games and performances, really, for Arsenal. And so there's certainly testing times for Arteta, but he's got to make sure that on Friday night, he's got the players hungry. He's got the players knowing what's at stake without feeling nervous or intimidated, I guess. Mm. And is it almost... Rich, a now or never moment because it seems logically the best chance for a team like Arsenal to either postpone or prevent a City dynasty. Because if you think about it, if they go out and spend £150 on Jude Bellingham, well, (laughs) we all might as well give up, mightn't we? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's not just even City, but you'd expect Liverpool, Manchester United... Tottenham and they get a new manager and also Chelsea if they get that together to, to be stronger next season so I mean this is a fantastic chance for Arsenal and you know as, as John said you know if they win on on, on Friday they go into that City game with such a good buffer and I think at this stage of the season okay you can look at the argument points on the board or games in hand and points on the board is definitely the biggest psychological factor and there's no bigger chance of doing it now as you say they're, they're so close to it it's just a case of can they hold their nerve and they've had such um, a rollercoaster season but I've really enjoyed watching Arsenal play I've loved them this season I have to, I have to say but there, there's been a lot of um, kind of rollercoaster type games a lot of late winners and you just wonder whether psychologically is, is that taking its toll you know with these kind of four points dropped in the last two games as you say I, I think Arsenal regroups you know, they'll, they'll win they should win comfortably against Southampton, famous large wise, of course, and go into that City game full of confidence. Because as you say, City will come, will naturally be stronger as they, they tend to evolve every year and and so will the other sides as well. So it's really on Arsenal really to kind of put all their eggs in that basket, which they have, which they have no choice to, and and really go for it and kind of hold their nerve now. You know, as you say, they've, they've answered every question of them that's been asked of them this season, resoundingly, and it's just about maintaining that now. And I think they can. Mm. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Aston Villa are the only team to currently be matching City's consistency. Tyrone Mings came into professional football late as an academy reject who excelled in non-league. He's an England international, a natural leader, who's not forgotten where he comes from. Welcome. First of all, Tyrone. Now, I know it's unusual to start an interview with a footballer with a quote from Nelson Mandela. Uh But he's a hero of mine, and I think it fits. He once said, it's not where you start, but how high you aim. Can you identify with that? 
Yeah. I think everybody who's ambitious can, but I certainly can in my journey through football, which I think is where this conversation might go. I certainly can in my current predicament in the journey that we're going on with Aston Villa. So yeah, absolutely. Resonates with me in, in many different ways. Mm. So your background is, is very well documented. Football gives you a great platform, doesn't it, to relate to other people and to the social issues around the game and around life in general. How much of a responsibility do you feel to highlight things that are important to you away from the game? I do feel a great sense of responsibility to highlight them because I can. And I feel like the things that happen in football sometimes are a, a um, shine a light on wider social issues, whether it be problems in the workplace, whether it be bullying, whether it be discrimination. And I feel like if those things are happening in the environment I'm in with a platform, then for sure they're happening in places where people don't have platforms. And I'm, there really I'm talking about kids and not having the opportunity to speak up or hear their point or get their point across. So yeah, I do feel a great sense of responsibility, but with the fame that we have and the role model status that we have, responsibility comes with that. And sometimes we fall short of expectations, but yeah, I really enjoy the, the responsibility as well. Because mm. we all know football is a brutal game and you were released at 15. Can you transport yourself to that day when you went back home and it was like, what am I going to do now? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a real strange period from 15 to, I guess, getting back into the game at nearly 20 because the many different avenues that I went down that were blocked were, I guess it was starting to become apparent that this may never happen. So a very difficult day being told I was being released and then going home and my mum kind of being like, right, what now? She wrote to all 72 football league clubs back in the day when you used to send letters <laughs> and said, oh, my son's been released, blah, blah, blah. But as you can imagine, they probably had tons of them a day. Um, so didn't re I think she got a reply from maybe six or seven of which I think she still has the letters. So yeah, a real, real difficult time. But then I wouldn't trade any of that for Mick McCarthy turning around at the end of my trial game and saying, I want to sign you. So a lot of learned experiences, a lot of harsh experiences mm. from 15 to 19, but experiences that probably helped me eventually when I got back into the game as well. Because mm. I do get a sense from looking at you from the outside, as it were, that you do give back a lot. And I found it really interesting that you've got your academies because academy football is something I know fairly well. I, I wrote a book on it and did a film on it. It is dehumanising in many ways, the whole process. Mm. You know, kids are used as commodities. It's mm. just terrible. How do you square that, your experience, with the innocent kids who are turning up at your schools mm. or, your, or your sessions? Mm. Well, that's a really good question. Our academies, for the time that they've been running now, which is five years, four or five years, has never been about becoming a professional because I always felt like the, the worst part of academy football for me was not being able to play with my friends, having to sacrifice a lot at a young age when really you should try to keep the innocence in kids. And yeah, just the fun being sucked out of football for me at a young age. Not to say that I didn't love it at the time, because I did. But looking back on it now, I think there's a lot of bad traits and a lot of, a lot of bad parts of academy football. So we set it up as extra training, really highly qualified coaches, but you don't need to leave your grassroots club to attend. They're kind of extra training sessions in the evenings. Mm. So that if you want to come and try new skills, enjoy football in an environment that isn't pressured towards winning a game or losing a game. That was the environment that we tried to set up. Like I said, transport five years into the future and where we are now is that there is such a demand for people wanting off the back of the academy sessions that we've run and how much they enjoy it to play games. But they want to play games because maybe they're not the best in their grassroots club or maybe they're not the most confident or maybe they've never even played a game before. So we set up teams 
to again continue the philosophy <clears throat> if you really enjoy your football and you want to learn and you just want it to be about fun this might be the place for you mm. again as I said your background <clears throat> is well documented we talk in, in fairly cliche terms sometimes about living the dream now you've done that from progressing from you know Yate Town and Chippen and you think fans relate to you because of that I hope so but then because <clears throat> you know what real world's like, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. But then respect and relatability, I don't think, are something that is just given. I think I still have to show my personality and that I am still relatable just as much as anybody else to make people feel like they can relate to me. There's no good saying, oh, I came from Chippenham Town, but... I don't want to speak about that. I don't want anything to do with that part of my life anymore because that's not me. I'm still the same person that I was at Chippenham and Yate. And like you said, living the dream. I'm living the non-league footballer's dream and every fan that played football as a youngster's dream. So yeah, I hope it still mm. makes me relatable. Does it also explain the intensity of your commitment to the game as well? Because that comes across in every match. There's always a close-up <laughs> for you in a game, you know, with either your mouth open, your eyes wide open, you know? Or pointing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, probably. I just love competing. I don't know if that comes from non-league. I definitely think there are traits of my game that come from non-league. Probably, like you said, the ferociousness, the lack of being intimidated. I think I've seen and played against much bigger and tougher, stronger guys in non-league when I was 17, 18 than what I come across now. So yeah, there's definitely an element of my non-league past, velocity, ferociousness, aggressiveness that I still carry with me in my current day. But I think one of the first things that Una Emery wanted to try and do was tame that. Channel it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I found it really interesting, you know, that Okay, and this is really dangerous because you never tell a, a footballer or a player that, oh, by the way, you've just turned 30. Because they go, ooh, <laughs> right, that's just happened with you. In a way, has your, your route into the professional game, are you benefiting from that now? Because you haven't got the miles on the clock that mm. you would have done if you'd been through the system. Yeah, I definitely think that. I definitely feel... I definitely feel like I've got a long, long way to go in the game in terms of my playing days. I don't feel... Burnt out. If anything, this stage of my career, I feel more energised than ever because of, I guess, the manager coming in has probably been a huge step in that. But I've just been through so much with Aston Villa that now it seems like everything's coming together and it's a perfect storm of me having the experience but still wanting to learn and actually realising that I don't know anywhere near as much as what I thought I did. And the manager and his coaching staff, so eager to teach. But in terms of the mileage in my legs, yeah, you could maybe argue that that is a benefit for sure. Then my knee injury maybe took a little bit out of them as well. So I feel like I'm exactly where I should be. And I feel like I'm excited by that as well. But yeah, not having the. I mean, I play next to Ezri Conte most games, and he's played more professional football than me and he's four years younger. Mm. So I am aware of it, and I see it as a blessing more than a curse. You mentioned Unai. I spoke with him for this podcast about six, eight weeks ago. What came across was, one, the intensity, mm. but also there's much more to him than you see in this environment. You know, we're sitting at a press conference dais, and that doesn't give a measure of the man. What struck me was, you know, he, he's basically from that school, I never sleep, mm. okay? Can you give me an insight into what he's actually taught you? Not in this, I couldn't, but I'll try. And I mean that by the lack of time, not the fact that I don't want to share <laughs> it. Um, what has he taught me? Like I said, one of the first things he said in the very first meeting that we had was he was kind of pointing all over the pitch on a clipboard and saying, this is where I see you playing and and sometimes you're here and sometimes you're here and sometimes you're here and sometimes you're covering over there and sometimes you're out of position and sometimes you're making a tackle to get back here. He was like, I don't really want that from you. 
what I want is for you to play in your position and to do your job. But even that was kind of like, as long as there is accountability for everybody else, myself included, to do our jobs, then I don't really see where the kind of functioning of the team can fail because maybe in the past we've been not off the cuff, that would be disrespectful, but there's been many more times where we've gone into games with maybe less of a clear picture in terms of what we're going to do in every phase of the game. Mm. I mean, in a high press, in the middle of the pitch, in a low block, if we're winning, if we're losing, in a dead ball situation. I think he's probably just simplified and made things much clearer. And for someone who is getting used to English as his second language, I think that's a really impressive Mm. thing to have been able to do in such a short space of time. Mm. Because that attention to detail is key, isn't it? And it's also, I also spoke to Mikel Arteta around about the sort of whole Basque culture of Mm -hmm. football. And there are so many similarities that there is that intensity that Mikel has, that Unai has, but it's all done in that building, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's all done exhaustively by a group who just basically devote themselves to getting you better. Yeah, and I've been around Eddie Howe, who is relentless as well obsessive he would probably say but I've never been in around a coaching staff that solely has somebody's job dedicated to individual improvement so there's a member of coach Rodri whose job is to work with people on an individual basis solely so before it would be oh maybe I'll grab the guy who's in charge of the defensive stuff and we'll do some defending work um I think a guy at Chelsea does the same thing. Yeah. Sorry, Arsenal, sorry. Such as the attention to detail, he knows pretty much everything there is to know about every position. So when I first started working with him, I'm thinking, he's great for centre-backs. Then I see him working with Douglas Luiz. Then I see him working with Ollie Watkins. And the attention to detail and the amount of knowledge that is there, it can never be a bad thing for a player that wants to learn. So... Mm. Yeah. And it's also, I suppose, you know, we talked about intensity of commitment. I spoke to Emmy when he got back from the World Cup. Loved the tattoo, of course. He referred to the sacrifices made by his family and all to those sort of solitary sessions on Sunday when he wasn't in the team and, you know, the work with coaches. But also he talked about playing with purpose, even if it was in training, you mm-hmm. know, playing for a bottle of shampoo so mm-hmm. it means something. Does that strike a chord with you? Because I suspect you're quite similar in that sense. In terms of what? In terms of that intensity or purity of commitment, if mm. you like, and purpose. Look, yeah. you know, let's not mess around with this, toss around after training or whatever. Let's do it because we want to get something out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm very much with the train of thought of, like, I'm not here to make friends. Whilst I'm very friendly with people here, I don't plan on having many friends that I met in football when I finish because I have, I have friends still that I went to school with. I have friends outside of football. Not to say that you don't pick up friends on the way. Connor Cody is a very good friend of mine. But other than that, we're here to win. And we've all been signed by the club to win, not to be best friends and not to create relationships that will outlast our football careers. The one thing that we should have in common is that everybody here is so committed to winning and we will do whatever that takes. If that means getting close to each other and being friendly and creating a beautiful environment that everybody wants to come to work into. That is what we have done, which is an amazing thing to be able to do in a work environment. But respect here, I think he's earned through wanting to win and being relentless to win and doing anything to win. So if it means sacrificing, if it means turning up early and staying late, if it means working hard on the training pitch, all those things are kind of common traits throughout the club now. And yeah, that comes out in training as well. Mm. There are different players that are motivated in different ways, internally, externally, but something that's great at this club at the moment is is that relentless will to win. And, and I would have to say that starts from the manager. Mm. Mm. You just come around the place and you can feel you know, the, the whole momentum of it. Mm. How far do you think the ethos that Unai Emery has brought into this football club <clears throat> can take the club? right to the very top and whatever that looks like 
for the club. I wouldn't want to put a limit on it. I wouldn't want to say winning this or winning that, but I tell you what, there will never be a stone that's left unturned and there will never be a, we can never use the excuse that we didn't work hard enough or try hard enough. I think what we've seen the manager do and the players commit to in the short space of time that he's been here has been certainly no, nobody in their right frame of mind would have said that we'd be sitting sixth, seventh, eighth, maybe even in the top half when he first arrived and especially a few weeks ago when it looked like we couldn't move from 11th. The journey that we've been on has been quite extraordinary, but where can he take us? Anywhere he wants, I think. I don't think there's a limit that can be placed on the will and the drive and the passion that we all have to get to the top. We'd love to win a trophy, we'd love to qualify for Europe, and that has to be our, our immediate next goals. Mm. So I know the collective ambitions, what about the personal ambitions? Because again, you know, going outside the game, I read a piece where you're learning the piano and jujitsu or whatever it is. There's that questing nature, if you like. When you end your career and you look back, what do you want to see? And I'm not uh, saying it's going to happen tomorrow, by the way. No, no, yeah. <laughs> Nothing too dissimilar than what I look back on the last 10 years and see what I've achieved. I just think if I can, if I know that I gave everything, then where I end up is sometimes out of your control. I've been in a few turbulent situations at Aston Villa that felt like they were out of my control. I was still the same person. I was still the same. I still had the same commitment to win. I still had the same commitment to learn. But sometimes things are out of your control. So as long as I look back in my football career and think, I'd done everything, I gave everything, I was always open to learning, I was always open to improving, that never stopped. Then accolades and trophies and stuff like that are kind of byproduct of that winning mentality, but it doesn't guarantee anything. And I can't sit here and say that if I don't finish my career with a trophy or with this or with that, then I would be disappointed. I mean, if you offered me a runners-up medal in the European Championships when I was in non-league, I'd have been like, don't know what on earth you're thinking. So there are many things that I look back on with fondness. But again, they weren't born out of, I really want to do this or I really want to win that. I just think that incremental improvements are the best way for me to give myself the best chance. Well, all the best for your future, mate. Thank you for your time. Ah, you're very welcome. Thank you. Cheers, man. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. So, John, I found him an impressive individual, reflective, insightful, and he also gave us, didn't he, a real glimpse into why Unai Emery has been such a transformative appointment. Yeah, I, I found it a fascinating interview. I think sometimes Tyrone Mings's unshakable belief in himself can come across as, as almost arrogant, but I feel as if Actually, I forgive players a lot in doing that because you have to have that belief. When you consider, it was also interesting, wasn't it, to hear him sort of kind of reflect upon his release, how his mum had sort of kind of written to all the clubs and please give my son another chance and how she kept those the letters from the clubs that actually the very few that bothered to reply. I found that fascinating, absolutely fascinating. It's a, it was a window into his mind, wasn't it? Yes, I've been rejected before, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to show you. And, and I love that about him. So if I thought in the past, perhaps on sort of England duty, where, where, where it's, I think, almost he's been almost blasé about mistakes or kind of arrogance or kind of, you know, why England aren't defending better, then I sincerely apologise because this is a guy that's just fixated, I think, on being the best that he can and having that unshakable belief. I really like the way that he was so... He didn't want to be in any way disrespectful about previous managers. But again, I thought that was good. Just talking about the organisation of Emery, that's what struck me. We might think it's really basic about where players should be, where the team structure is, what their roles are, how a game evolves and what their position on the pitch should be. But I just thought it was interesting to hear him say, Emery took me aside and said, no, this is where you play. This is where I want you to play. This is Tyrone Mings 
who could take that the wrong way, wants to listen, wants to learn. And I was just so impressed with Mings, but also his his evaluation of what a good coach and what a good organiser Emery is. Mm, yeah, when you go into a villa these days, you, know, you, you get people telling you about Emery's no sleep approach. You know, I hear that he, he takes his laptop into the gym so he can keep working when he's on the spin bike. Rich, what again came across really strongly was the individualised nature of the coaching there. How important is that in the modern era? Yeah, I think I think it's vital. You know, you're looking at, at marginal gains and, and players feeling prepared and feeling comfortable. And, and also, as you say, you look at modern players and feeling important, feeling loved. And when you have someone giving you that attention to detail, Tyrone mentioned Rodri, who, who does that job at Villa. We see the other clubs as well, Arsenal in particular. It just gives that player that sense of clarity and that sense of, okay, you know, this, the coaching staff care about me and my development. Obviously, you want the team needs to win is for the greater good, and you know the work that they do is for the greater good. But if you've got coaches there who are, you know, seem to be obsessed and and really you know care about players improving, you're only going to see the results. I mean, look at Ollie Watkins for example. You know, his games come on leaps and bounds since the World Cup, and a lot of the work Rodri's done with him and getting him to watch players like Aubameyang and how they, how he makes his runs and and players like that really seen that come into Watkins game as you know he's got natural natural ability, natural pace, natural power and his 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 movements really improved and so to cuteness in his play. We've seen it with Tyler Mings as well, as as John said in the interview, you know, this is how I want you to play, this is what I want you to do. And of course there's that attention to detail, but a lot of the players that we've spoken to, Mike and that colleagues have spoken to, they all talk about the clarity and being able to go out on the pitch with that kind of okay you've got the attention to detail but then you also have the simplicity of the instructions to say i want you to do xyz and, and obviously with the work rate and then you know run run as hard as you can basically of course and we're seeing it we're seeing that the fruits of that labor i mean performances at stanford bridge and and against newcastle were cases in point where they just blew teams away and as you say that comes down to that kind of of course the team structure but the individualized coaching as well and everyone knows where they stand everyone knows what's expected of them and everyone's improving as well. And yeah, I mean, they, they've been great to watch. Mm. How far do you think they can go, John, into Europe? You know, belief is certainly growing. Yeah, I, I do think you've probably got to work out the sums there about who gets into what and what position a European place could fall down to. It could potentially come down to seventh, couldn't it? I'd be surprised if Villa finish in the top six ultimately. I think they've been on a sensational run and now they're playing with such belief and Watkins is playing so well. I feel as if they might just sneak it in, into Europe, but it might depend on kind of where they qualify. But for the long term, I just feel as if Emery, not every not every club works, does it? And and sort of not every club is the right platform. And I just feel as if Emery's found a, a really good base a really good platform in Aston Villa is very similar I think to the clubs that where he's had success before if you like in terms of up and coming sort of almost struggle at the bigger teams and and Villa is is aspiring to be to get back to where they were as one of the greats of European football and I just feel as if step by step I really feel even if it's not this season there's no doubt in my mind that Emery can get them back into Europe and get them back to where they belong because I always look upon Villa as one of the giants of English football and beyond. And I, I feel that they've really got a really good manager who can get them back to there with Emery. Mm. Brighton, Rich, are probably the other club or team to make a great advance under new management this season. You know, they play Manchester United in the other FA Cup semi-final this weekend. Now, this quote, I think you probably weren't born when this quote was coined, but 40 years ago, FA Cup, final and Gordon Smith must score is it time that they're going to lay that ghost and actually beat United at Wembley yeah I mean a absolutely you know Zerbi's come in and he's done a superb job not just in terms of how they play as a whole in terms of their build-up play from the back and the way they just swarm all over teams if they're attacking play but you're clearly seeing players getting better again I mean they did really well under under Potter of course and you're almost thinking, you know, how far can these players go? Have they reached their ceiling? Clearly not. So many players have kind of come on leaps and bounds since that time. You look at Matoma, 
look at Evan Ferguson and like you know sadly he won't be playing or he might miss out for injury you've got Alexis McAllister doing well Casado doing well and it's interesting you know a colleague Naylor spoke to Adam Lallana recently and he just said you know Lallana is someone who's played under Klopp Pochettino you know great progressive managers and he said look the Zerbi is in that calibre because of the way he makes players better so they'll come into this game full of confidence you know the way they played at Sanford Bridge was superb completely dominated that game and were clear winners and you know, they're coming up against United side who are a bit light to the back through injuries and suspensions and so if there's any opportunity any time to do it now is that you know with slightly weakened United of course United going forward are are, are good sides especially if Rashford's back but but even if he is back I mean you say look at that back line and they are there to be got at they are there to be penetrated and the way Brighton are playing they're you know there's no better opportunity for them to lay that ghost to rest, I feel. Mm. You know, United, John, they've obviously got Harry Maguire suspended. It's basically Hunt, the central defender for them. I spoke to Eric Ten Hag the other week and he came across as a man of great certainty and you could understand how and why he's changed the culture at Manchester United. I just want to throw that into the mix for the final debate, please, about Chelsea. We're led to believe that Nagelsmann has impressed. Does Chelsea need to get a manager, again, another transformative manager, like a Ten Hag or a De Zerbi or a Unai Emery, into the bridge as soon as possible? Yes, absolutely. I feel as if there's a real danger now that they, they could allow this season to drift and then be a real worry I feel as if a manager, a new manager, might as well just come in now. It's bizarre, isn't it, what's happened? It's an advert in how not to run a football club, frankly, for me, because in less than a year, Todd Bowley has taken the team apart. You know, whatever you think about Abramovich, and of course they had to, of course he had to leave, and we know the reasons why. But he he built up a club and a structure there that that was winning trophies year in year out. We might not have even liked the way that kind of had a managerial revolving door policy. But this is just ridiculous. I mean, it's just so many players, so many disillusioned players as a result. Supermarket sweep, overspending, so I have to balance the books in the next window. It's just crazy. It's just, it looks like ridiculous football manager. And someone's got to get hold of them and say, hang on a minute. You know, I'd be worried a bit if I were Nagelsmann. So I do think Nagelsmann would be a decent fit. And I, I, I think that Nagelsmann is red hot favourite right now. I think it will be Nagelsmann. But I do feel as if someone needs to say to them, hang on, I need to take charge here. And Nagelsmann has to be, if it's him, has to be that demonstrative, strong leader to say, I'm in charge. I'm the main man. This is how I run it. I want my dressing room. I want my to be in charge of my dressing room. I've no problem at all with with the owners going in after the matches. Lots of t- Lots of owners do it. And he does it every week. So it wasn't as if it was a one-off against Brighton. But I just feel you've got to be sensible. And what's the point in pulling apart a team? Don't be ridiculous. So leave the team talks to the manager. But at the moment, Chelsea really worry me about how they're going to regain the faith of the supporters. Because I tell you what, the fans were brilliant against Real Madrid on Tuesday night. Absolutely sensational. And they stick with the team, but they're unhappy and rightly so with the ownership. Well, they're not the only ones unhappy, are they, Rich? You know, What about the impact of criticism from such iconic figures as Didier Drogba, who talked about a lack of class and an absence of a clear strategy, and also Thiago Silva, who basically broke ranks and, and said, look, you know, we need to put a strategy in place, otherwise next season we'll make the same mistakes. Yeah, I think you're always going to get you know, ex-players giving their opinion, especially, you know, when they were from an era which was so successful and you are seeing a kind of shift from that because, you know, in, in Didier Drogba's day, Chelsea bought proven players to come in and win trophies and their track record under Babovic was fruitful as a result. Probably a bit more concerning hearing your senior player do it. Not concerning in the sense that he's done anything wrong. I think he needed to say it. I think the Chelsea fans probably happy that someone in the side and the senior player has come out and said this because it means that they're I wouldn't say discontent but players are questioning the strategy and it just applies that pressure to say look you know as John said get your act together 
let's get everything in order. Do you say look the, the signings that that they've made, you know, the kind of long term signings of the young players? You're looking at it two ways. It's either very exciting for the future, or you look at it cyn- uh, in a cynical way, i.e., you know, trying to balance the books and amortization and things like that. But if they are able to get those young players going and get the best out of them, then of course they're going to be great to watch. But it's looking at that strategy. Of course, they made a few uh, reshuffles behind the scenes in terms of, you know, directing the football and things like that. And you hope that that pays off for them. But at the moment, as you say, the kind of scattergun approach, you know, not buying a striker in January, for example, when they needed one, not filling in other key positions. Of course, they've got Enzo Fernandez, of course, but then they look so toothless up front and you're thinking, why maybe the money could have been reinvested as well in another position. So, as you say, if they can have that, that offloading of players which they need to do by, by June the 30th to balance the books for the season uh, as John mentioned then a new manager can come in and you know put a stamp on things but if you're a player you're, you're in a dressing room and some players have to change outside because it's too big and training is 11v11 and a 9v9 going on because there's just too many players you know, that is just not good preparation for any game um, mm. and that's just what, you know an example of the kind of shambles which is going on so if they can sort that out, then of course, Charlie, you have the potential to do really well. But you question that because of the decisions that have already been made. Okay, well, there has to be more to Todd Bowley than appearances and Chelsea's performances suggest. They don't suffer fools in the hyper-competitive worlds of North American sport and the global financial markets. His problem, it seems to me, is the urge to run before he can walk. This season, we all agree is a hugely expensive write-off. A new manager needs to help create a new strategy. Recruitment needs to reset. The hierarchy, and here's the problem, is top-heavy and inefficient. It might get worse before it gets better. So thanks to John and Richard for their insights, and thanks also to Tyrone Means. They've certainly got a good thing going at Villa Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.